This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. I'm Roisin Ingle and you are very welcome to Back to Yours, a podcast where I knock on the doors of some big names to tell the story of their lives through the houses they've lived in. You can listen back if you've missed them to past episodes which feature Catelyn Moran, Dolly Alderton and Marion Keyes. My guest this episode is an Irish national treasure, an Irish Times columnist and a weaver of words and stories from rural Ireland. Michael Harding is the author of several memoirs, including Chest Pains, his latest, which tells the story of a pivotal year for the writer when he had a life-changing event, an acute heart attack. Michael lives with his beloved sculptor Cathy Carmen in deepest, darkest Leitrim, but he spends a lot of his time travelling around the country in his camper van. So that's where we went on a rainy day to talk to Michael about the houses he's lived in, the stent he had put in and the allure of the open road. Michael, Michael Harding, here we are in Roshin. your... Roshin, <laughs> Michael. Oh, Roshin. <laughs> That's the way I talk in the camper van. Is it? Yeah. yeah, I can see how you'd get into that vibe actually on your own here. Just yeah, be... yeah. Talking to yourself. Do you well, talk, I to talk to yourself? Well, I talk to angels. Angels. I have okay. an angel up here. See him. Oh yeah. Hanging down. Okay. There's a lovely rain pattering down on your two little skylights. Can you tell me about why you felt the need to, and it was a real urge and a need to get a camper van and to yeah. kind of start on this nomadic life that you have been living for. Yeah. I don't know, Whatever I meant to. I, I've always, I've always loved traveling in Ireland in like short distances. I mean, that's really since I was, I was twenty-one years of age, and I got an Austin A40, and and I loved it uh, dearly, and I was kind of unhappy. I had it for about a day, and a friend got into it and drove it over a ditch, the same day that I bought it, and God, I was unhappy. But it was fixed and I loved it and I've had many, many cars. And I think that people in rural Ireland, they, maybe urban people don't realise how much country people need cars. And it kind of equates to what you'd be spending on Dart and buses and this, that and the other. And it's kind of not, not much more, right? Um, so I, I grew to love cars because they get me around the country. And if I was working in Sheamston, Kerry, or if I was working in... Uh, Theatre Omnibus in Clare or living in Donegal. I'm in different places. And over my life, I've loved that. And uh, I got this urge uh, last year to, to be man in a camper van. I thought, like, I'm at the age where I'm so old, I give off about things. And there's nothing as kind of comforting as being in your own little world, muttering to yourself at the traffic lights. And I, I got a camper van and a beautiful camper van, and it was little Mercedes Vito. And um, it was like small enough and cheap enough for me to test out the idea. And so this year, last week, I made the huge choice to get rid of it in order to buy a bigger one. Now, I also had to sell me car, me beautiful Skoda, you love your like Skoda. Like me beautiful Skoda. You love that Skoda. I have sacrificed everything <laughs> just for this van that we're in. And it's beautiful. It's got, it's 
got lovely woolen wall. It's like, it's like it got a carpet on the there's wall. There's a carpet on the wall. Great and behind the that, wall. there's insulation like you'd have in your attic. Okay. And inside here, this is the door into the toilet and to the, the shower. You can have a shower in there. And then that's about it. There's a kind of a, a little kitchen here, which is just a line of stuff. It's got a cooker and a fridge. And then the two seats up in the and front. And it's all you need, really. That's all you need. It's very functional. It's like an office. So we're sitting in the back of it where there's no windows. And there's, there's some people like, the, the, the motorhome to some people in Ireland would be like a kind of a, a caravan with an engine in it, right? And they like the Laura Ashley old frills and sofas and things. This is strictly East European. Yeah. This is a functionality. It's minimalist, isn't it? It's minimalist, but it will get you, they tell me, to Minsk and back in minus 40, right? See, do you see down there behind under the driver's seat, there's a huge heater. Yeah. And it works off the diesel. Okay. And uh, it's for serious cold weather. So are you going to bring it away? No, but I fantasise. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, probably, I'll probably go to Glen Gevlin on a wet day maybe in December. That'll be about it. Now, your book, new, your new book out, Chest Pains, mm. it's... The camper van is kind of stars in it, doesn't it? As well it does, as yourself. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a figure, it's a character yeah. in the book. Yeah. Because the book kind of talks about the year, I think the year leading up to your heart attack. Yeah. And the camper van then was a big part of the book. So yeah. tell us about that need to go off the nomad urge in you. And it was really a bit of an escape, wasn't it? I had a heart attack. But for a year beforehand, I felt I was living a kind of a, a doomed life. I, I, I became very focused on mortality and death and, and the sense that, you know, gosh, I'm terribly old. And I turned very much back, like a salmon going back up the river. I went back to Christianity and, and found huge comfort, I have to say, huge comfort in icons and Christian stuff. And then the heart attack happened and it was like a liberation. So that a lot of people talk about having depression after a heart attack. But I think I had all my depression for five or six years before. Because you're contrary. So when, when the heart attack happened, I felt good. I felt, wow, so that's all it was, a heart attack. I'm fine. And they put in a stent and they said, get on with yourself there now and stop making a fuss of yourself. So as some sort of kind of, I don't know, metaphor that would transport me into heaven, I, I started having this vision of a camper van. Me in a camper van would be me happy. You know, driving off into the sunset. So what more would you want? And in this fantasy, you were kind of on your own, weren't you? Even though you have a, a very good relationship. I have a long-standing relationship with Cathy Carmen, the Irish sculptor. Uh, she, she's my partner for 35 years. And uh, I suppose, like... She'd say, go on with you, head off there. Give me a bit of peace for a night or two. But I think she also hugely shared the camper van with me. And it, it was just so, it's the way it happened. There was something about the camper van more than anything else that the two of us seemed to have great fun with. So that from the word go, I was, I was going heading off for Glen Column Kill, but she was with me. Initially, though, it was something that you thought you were having for yourself, and it was only really when it manifested that you kind of yeah. I, but it it's still I think it still is. There's a, there's there's very much a solitary thing about it even still, and I think Kathy, my wife, would would know that 
uh, and support that, she would call it a man cave. Um, and she would, I think, like we've been, we've been to Donegal in it, but I would then head off on my own. And I think when I go on my own, it's suitable for writing. And the back of it is like a little studio. And you can drive to places and meet people and you're, you can actually, you're not tied down, you're not staying with people, you're not crashing in on people. But at the same time, you could go and meet people in Westport or whatever that I'd love to meet that I haven't seen for years. And you could stop halfway home. You know, and I, there's something about the nomadic life that I love. There's something about being on the road I love. Um, I, just, I just love stopping at filling stations. I always talk about this, but the reason is because they're extraordinarily like, they're like medieval bazaars in the sense that they don't represent the local village. You know, if you stop in a gala shop, let's say in Portlaoise, you're not stopping in Portlaoise. You're stopping in some transient space where there are people from Cork, Belfast, everywhere having a sandwich or getting petrol. And you can identify them so quickly. You know, families full of anxiety and you know they're on their way home from a terrible weekend holiday or something. And you can see life in a beautiful way. So I've, I've just always liked travelling like that. And I think that there's also another point about it, and that is there's a solitary thing in the camper van where it's like a monk's cave. It's like a hermit's cave. And I am balanced between loving the idea of engaging with people, but also I am I'm drawn to solitude, like, madly. I don't know why. Sometimes I think it's just depression. Sometimes I think it's like, you know, I'm, I'm a calm person, or sometimes I think it's like a spiritual call. Like, I genuinely think that there's a way that you can relate to landscape where the landscape is speaking to you. You know, when we name places, when we name places, it, it can be colonial, it can be predatory. You know, I, I call this place Grafton Heights. You know, I name places. And yet there's another sense in which you can't name the hill, you can't name the tree. You need to find out what its name is. And that sense of kind of being responsive to nature, the sense that you're, you're open-hearted, that, that the cosmos is actually speaking to you. The sentences are full of trees. The trees are talking to you. That I love. And there's a great Hebrew philosopher in the 1920s or 30s, Martin Buber. He talks about this eloquently in a book called I Thou the downness of everything around you. And I have been drawn to that since I was a child, and I write about it endlessly, that sense of when you're alone, you're listening. When you're alone, you're really hearing the language of the cosmos, right, in the silence. And that's the only place you do hear it, at its deepest root. And it's extraordinary. And it is just, like, addictive to me. When you, when you begin to hear that voice of silence, how can you stop listening to it? Because it calms you. It, it, it seems to contextualise every anxiety you have or every narrative that's a trouble for you or whatever. And so there I am, and I love being alone. But it's not an aloneness that's kind of pushing people away. It's genuinely an aloneness that gets me high. I want to, like, 
embrace people. You know, and I go from one extreme to the other. So... Do you know you wrote about um, being a pram baby once or someone asked yeah. you were you a pram baby and you That's mentioned right. it in the book as well. Yeah. And uh, this idea, this he was quite an interesting character you met and he was suggesting that you were a pram baby and that's what made you a writer, that you were yeah. left outside on your own yeah. pram in the garden and that you'd be looking up and imagining yeah. other worlds. Yeah. Um, do you think something to do with that, I wonder, your your solitude? I do. back that deep? I, I do and I think that is is true for nearly every writer that I can think of, uh, they've always had a period uh, where they were sick. It's amazing the amount of writers who got an illness, like TB or something, and they were confined to bed in their, like, you know, young age or maybe just teenage or puberty or whatever. And in that confinement, they obviously became the writer. So part of the writing comes out of listening out of solitude, out of, for me it was, I remember being in the pram, I remember being pushed out into the back garden in the semi-detached in Farnham Road in Cavan, and we had those trees around, it was high, now there were, there were leyland, those what people call palm trees, leyland I think. They weren't very remarkable as trees, but to me they were absolutely beautiful. They were anti molly multiplied by a hundred thousand, you know, they were beautiful kind of swishing going like that all the time. And I, I could lie there, at least my memory is lying there, in utter bliss. And then when I was able to walk or when I was able to cycle a bicycle, all I wanted to do was cycle what was four miles, a short cycle to Kilikeen, which is Lakokta, which is the Erne. And the trees out there in what would have been Lord Farnham's parkland, absolutely glorious. And I would sit for hours and hours under huge copper beaches, that are still there and I can still go back and sit under them and still talk to them and remember being there as a 10, 11, 12 year old. Yeah, I, what, I love that. What are your memories of that house you just mentioned there in Cavan? What kind of a house was it? What are your... What are your My mother's house, father's yeah. house. It was a good house. I mean, it was a semi-detached house built in 1950, 53, 52. My memories of it are hugely that, hugely the trees around it. And uh, ah, we had great fun, you know. It was like we weren't we weren't suburbia. We were actually four houses up on a hill. You had to go up a laneway in the country to get to these four houses. And fifty years later, there's houses all around. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like suburbia, but in actual fact, we used to live in the country at that time. But you moved on, and you I moved on when I was. I think country people tend to move on quicker than urban people because again. When you're 18 and you come from a rural area, you're gone. You go to college. And that, that really is the break with the, the home place. Uh, by 21, I was living in West Cavan. I was teaching in a, a VEC job in, in Black Lion, in the local prison, the Lockin House. Uh, uh, and it was, I was, you know, I was 21. I had a car. I had a bit of a salary. And... Uh, Oh, I was free, but I mean, I was living, I discovered rural Ireland. I discovered mountain people. I discovered that, like, middle-class Cavan was one way of looking at the world, but this country way was totally different. I was far more a kind of community fabric, and doors were open, and you walked in, like, at, when I was finished school at four o'clock in the afternoon, I would walk into people's houses. 
And I, like I would just walk in and sit there. It, I can't believe it now. And you'd sit and you would just talk. And talk was an entertainment. So you learned how to be good at talking or to have a funny story or to be able to present what happened during the day in a way that was entertaining. And everybody else did the same. And then eventually somebody would say, will you stay for your dinner? And they would actually feed you. And me being a 20-year-old, one-year-old male, of course I'd stay for the dinner, especially if there was daughters in the house. And then the daughters would want to go to the dance in uh, either Glenfarn, Ballroom of Romance, or Ballinamore, or the Mayflower in Trumshambo. And I was the school teacher. I had a nice fancy car, a, a Cortina Mark II. And so I'd say, well, sure, I might go down to the Mayflower. Do you guys want to lift? And then the whole crowd of girls would be squashed into the car like sardines. <coughs> and the more, the more girls were squashed into the car, the happier I got. We'd put on uh, Philomena Begley. <laughs> and there was tapes in those days. They were kind of, I think they were called eight, like eight-track tapes. Whatever that meant, I don't know. But they were, they were as big as like big boxes. And you stuck it into the front dashboard. And you could hear Philomena Begley singing Blanket on the Ground and your owl steering wheel wobbling away down the mountain. You'd come back then at night after the dance. You'd, go, you'd be at the dance, right, in Glenfarn, and the girls would go off and they'd be looking for men. And mostly, like, there'd be a lot of guards going around in jumpers, you know, and, and very sharp slacks. <laughs> and you'd know a guard a mile away and you'd, you'd stay away from them. But... Uh, some of them would go with guards too, but anyway, whatever it happened, whatever intimacy, emotional and physical that might happen, would all be completed by about two o'clock so that they'd get the lift back up the mountain. So I'd be waiting there and then you'd get sometimes very, very happy young ladies coming back or maybe very sour young ladies giving off about some fella and you'd drive them back to wherever they came from and you'd say, will you come in for a cup of tea, a hodgy? A hodgy meant... It was a term of affection because in Glengevelin they spoke Irish up until the 1930s. Not many people know that. There was an Irish college, an Irish college in, in West Cavan. And they'd say, will you have, will you have tea haji? And you'd say, I will. Will you have fadge haji? And fadge is homemade bread. Bread that's made in the house. And so they'd give you a, a big feed of bread, maybe a rashers and mug of tea. And then they'd put on music. And I realised all these country women were listening to American country music, not the local stuff. Mm. Hank Williams, Johnny Prime, Charlie Pride, they were all. And you'd be dancing around the kitchen, you'd find yourself at seven in the morning, you were still there. It was like, I, I couldn't believe this life was going on in rural Ireland. It was wonderful. And what about the home you made um, in, when you went to study to be a priest? And was that a big shock for everyone who knew you? Uh, you see, it was because I had had taken a look at the seminary when I was 18. And once I saw that there was women on campus, I said, right, that's not for me. So I passed my three years doing a BA as a lay student. Mm. And in fact, I had a, a beautiful and happy relationship with a wonderful American woman. At the time, for a full year, we, we loved each other. And it was heartbreaking when it broke up and it was really awful for both of us. But uh, 
but that's that's what happened. Uh, then I went, I was teaching, and then I went and I got a job as a social worker. And I felt unhappy that that neither the teaching nor the social worker was giving me this sense of fulfillment and meaning at some sort of deep philosophical level. And I thought, you know something, the church is now becoming really modern. They're going to have women priests next week. They're going to have gay priests next week. It's all, no, but it felt like that. Just before, just before 1979, that's what it felt like. Yeah. Right? And uh, so I joined up at a time when many people like me were joining up. And to show you how kind of open things were at that time, when I was, when I was leaving my job as a social worker, they had a kind of a do. You know, in the country they say, have a do means kind of like, you know, functioning. But they had a do for me going back to Manute and there was a, the local curate was leaving to get married and they had a do for him getting married. And, and it was kind of, everybody was happy with the way that they, the whole church seemed to be opening out, right? Uh, anyway, I don't think, no, I don't think anybody was surprised at that time. Did you have to live when you were it training? It was a different idea. But did the you have to go and live in the seminary with oh, yeah. people? And what was that experience like? Like, what was that like as a home? I loved it. I mean, uh, I, again, what I really liked about the seminary was dawn, listening to a bell ringing at six o'clock. 20 past six, I think it was. The first bell. And the train to Galway used to pass outside the walls of Manut. And so you'd hear the bell, but then about 10 minutes later, you'd hear the train roaring, you know, the hooting, and you'd look out over the wall and you'd see the, the light of the cab carriages moving in the dark. And it, to me, it was like, you know, the knocking on the gate in Macbeth or the knocking on the door. It's like the outside world intruding on this inside world. And it was like, out there is the world and there's trains going places. And in here is like this. To me, it was a heavenly realm, I have to say. You know, I was romantic about it and I thought it was beautiful. And the sense of uh, the cold, crisp frost mornings and all the, the music and the prayer, the sense of that, you know, the, the red lamp hanging there in the half dark when you'd walk in and the echoes of, and, oh, I'd, I'd be really into monasteries. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what about the whole celibacy Forget about thing? God, I'd be into monasteries. But the celibacy thing, because you talked about the young women when you were taking them to the dances and all the yeah. excitement around that. So it's interesting uh, that you kind of sort of went full into that world. Because yeah, but you I didn't think... Was think yeah, I didn't... I, I was only four years theology yeah. and I was ordained. I didn't think that I would spend my life as a celibate. I mean, I... I I, I was absolutely sure that I would spend my life as, as a full-time writer. Right. Not as a curate. Like, like I'd, I'd, that was gone. I was going to be a full-time writer and that was it. And if I would fall in love with somebody, I wouldn't imagine that I'd be stopped falling in love and marrying somebody. That's actually what happened. So, I mean, I did live it out. I didn't, I didn't uh, get laicized or something. I, be, I was ordained a priest. And before I was ordained, I went to the bishop because the Polish man had become a pope and because that was such a shock to a lot of liberals in the church. So I took all my stuff out of Manute, packed everything out of the, into a car and I drove around for two or three days until I could get a meeting with my bishop 
in Carvin. I went to him and I said, um, I really think I need to get out because obviously the thing is changing and it's, I couldn't take it seriously. The clerical life, I thought, that was over. But, so what will I do? And if I go ahead, you'll be saying to me in four years' time, well, I wouldn't have ordained if you told me, if you'd been honest with me. So I'm, I'm letting you know that, that, that this new idea coming from Poland it's not going to suit what I'm looking at. So he said, well, fire away, go ahead, you know, be, be ordained and we'll see how it works out. Right? And I'd say he was doing what people would do. You know, he's young. Give him a Volkswagen and a house and he'll be happy enough. He'll settle down. You know, young man. Talks a lot. <laughs> so four years, I, ju- I had four years free education f- doing theology and I said I will do four years and I did four years in ministry, which were, were enriching and beautiful, and I, I felt privileged and humbled. But when the four years were up, I knocked on his door and said, I'm off now. And I said, and I stressed to him, I, I, this is not on some crisis of faith, or, oh, I've lost my faith in God. Or no, I said, I said simply, as I told you, clerical life makes no sense to me, has no sense of the template of the, what I understood we were going for. So, part ways. And it was all amicable. Well, what, of course, what could she say? <laughs> you fell in love? Yeah. I met <laughs> Cathy Carman in 1984. Met her originally in Anna McCarrig when I was finishing the book that became Priest. And it was. I mean, it, 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 it wasn't like love at first sight in the sense of, you know, gooey-eyed teenagers. It was a kind of very robust sort of identification. But I did know that she came into the room and she had a certain authenticity about her. And, and I felt a bit swamped by the affectation of artists who sounded like they were all in a different class or reared in posher houses than I was reared in. Or they had been to more Japanese restaurants than I'd been to. And I thought, Jesus, this is a very kind of esoteric place. You know, I, maybe I don't belong with artists. And then this woman came in and she's like, yeah, she's from where I come from. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, just wanted to wrap my arms around her. Uh, and that was 1984. And um, we were still together. And there you go, yeah. What kind of a person are you like to live with? What are your domestic habits? You'd have to ask Catherine Carmen that question, and I recommend you do. I'd love if you did, but anyway, she won't talk to anybody. She's a very quiet person. What am I like to live? I'm sure I'm often a person to live. I don't know how any person would put up with me. You mentioned in this book about uh, rows over dishwashers and things. I'm neurotic. You're neurotic, okay. Yeah. How does it manifest itself in a... I don't know. I talk a lot. I tend to go on talking. Neurotic people, you know the way they talk endlessly about something they're worried about. Um, I'm I'm awful. I'm dirty and, you know, I'm just terrible. I can't, I mean, do we want to get into how (laughs) awful I am as a person? I'm really terrible. I don't even feed the cats and I love them. I, I think... I write about them. They're famous. I love them so, and I don't even feed them. Cathy says, have you fed the cats? I says, no. 
I, I, I'm sure there's another side to me. Escape the Ordinary with Green and Blacks, sponsor of Back to Yours. Made with the finest ingredients and ethically sourced cocoa. Discover your favourite flavour from the range, which includes 70% cocoa, roasted almond, salted caramel, sea salt and mint. This place you built in the garden, like a sort of a, a writing studio, I suppose. Yeah. Because you needed that, going back to the solitude, you needed a space, another man cave. Well, 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 the first thing we built was Cathy's studio. And Cathy has a beautiful, like, big, big space uh, with, with two spaces. Like, she's a big workshop for doing big things, and then she has a smaller space inside of a, a good big room with a stove in it and, and where she can do, you know, paint and draw and stuff like that. So she, she had this, that's been there for about two decades. Then uh, I went to Mullingar for five years. Um, yeah. Another place you like to escape to, another home is Warsaw. You've been going there for a long time and it features in the book too. Yeah, yeah. I love, um, what I loved about Warsaw was that you, I could go to Warsaw and Cathy did it as well for months. But we could go there and work if we wanted to be alone, completely alone, and have a place to work that was nearly probably cheaper than living in Leitrim. Because we were getting, in winter, you'd get return flights on Ryanair to Warsaw for 70, 80 euros. Okay? Once you got there, you had no expenses. So you had only your Airbnb. And there were really, really competitive rates for any small place. And it meant that on three or four winters, and I love snow, I, I, snow to me has a metaphoric power to it. You know, it's like a grace from the cosmos. And it, it feels more so now that we realise we're probably the last generation. This is frightening to think that we will be the last to remember snow. That, that people in 100, 200, 300 years' time may re read books trying to imagine what it was like, this snow in Europe. I'd go there and spend four weeks and the snow would be serious, right? And I'd be sitting, because in Warsaw and a lot of places in Poland, you pay the money for the Airbnb, but the, the building is, is heated. So there's ferocious heat in them. They're very cosy. And you're eight floors up, and you're looking out the glass at the John Paul II Avenue, with four lanes of traffic and the, the little red lights, tail, you know, tailbacks, and the, and the snow falling on it. And it's so beautiful. It feels like, you feel so isolated. And maybe that's, again, it's, I love that sense of both being isolated and looking and connecting with people. So, God, I've loved Warsaw. Yeah. And now I'm falling in love with Belarus. But anyway... When did you go to Belarus? I went last August for a week to a convent. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm not well. Well, you seem to be better since your heart attack. Well, some people, they say, I've heard a lot of people talk about getting depressed severely after heart attack. I feel I must have done the old depression enough times beforehand 
Because reading the book, there's all these diff- different uh, signs, really, or different indicators that something wasn't right. Yeah. But you were reading it wrong, weren't you? You were. I was reading the signs as doom. And so I would say to people, like, I've been in and out of the depression story, but I would say to people, there's another thing to check. If you're not feeling well at a certain period in your life, particularly over 50, and you start to feel like that there's a darkness coming into you, do have the old heart checked as well. Because the heart could be going down slowly and giving you emotional changes. Yeah. And that you'd be putting them down to psychological issues. Exactly, when it could be physical. And it could be physical. The mind body is the same, isn't it? It's all connected, so it makes sense. But you said that you landed in a sort of very grateful place afterwards, which is a bit of a cliche, but you seem to have, you've always been, I think, a person giving thanks. Yeah. Just being in the world, but it seems to have um, heightened the heart attack. It could never be bigger. I I know last night I got a a message from a dear, dear friend who has been through seven weeks in hospital with with cancer, is recovering, but that's a long suffering. I had a text last night from another friend who spent yesterday feeding his friend, a young man who'd be like in his 30s. And to give the wife and other people a rest, he did the day just doing the feed, in spoon into the mouth, because he's had a brain damage and he's not going to recover. So the amount of things people suffer is enormous and overwhelming. So when I come along saying, I had a bit of an old chest pain there now and I got a stent in. I know how trivial it is. I know how small that is in the scheme of human suffering. And that's why I feel grateful. I feel like, well, if that's all that's worrying you, this is a happy day. And to be 65 and to be reasonably healthy, yeah, I feel hugely grateful. Hugely. And, and I think that is a... There's a great... I think mental health comes from actually feeling grateful. Do you know what I mean? No, no matter what. Something else very interesting that you write about in your book, which I was very interested in anyway, about uh, the abortion referendum. Yeah. Because while you were finding religion and you were getting back to praying, the campaign was going on and you were, for the first time in a way, uh, really thinking about that mm. issue. And there's a great quote that you have and it says, um, how could I begin to understand the vast landscape of hurt and worry that was out there in Ireland and why had I not bothered to wonder about it. Mm. I thought that was a really honest way of looking at, at kind of maybe the suffering of women and what mm. women had been kind of put through. Because mm. um, you're a very empathetic person and you're a very compassionate person. Mm. But there's an issue there that you hadn't really kind of engaged yeah. with. Yeah, I, but, you, but you were praying for a yes vote. I know, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. I don't know what the priest would have wanted your prayers. Well, I, or God priest? or whatever. Yeah, it wasn't but to do with the priest. That's right. Yeah. That's the point. That's the point. First of all, yeah, on the empathetic thing, the Savita Halapanavar case, uh, I remember going on that march and I remember being kind of like really deeply moved, not by what was happening, but, but the sense that how slow I am as a man to be here. Like, like I, I would be completely agreeing with everything intellectually at the dinner table yeah, yeah. if it came up as a conversation for the past 20 years I think I'd be politically correct in all my views about 
this, that and the other. But was I ever there? Uh, not really. I wouldn't be doing things like going on marches now for women's rights. Let the women get at that. But the Halepanaver thing was so emotional for the whole country. You know, we, the people were crying listening to the Joe Duffy show. And it just thought, we have to go to it. And then being there, that little step in the water, I suppose, it made me more sensitive to how insensitive I have been and continue to be. So again, when the Vote for Yes campaign started on the Eighth Amendment, I'd have no problem saying that I was for the amendment of the Constitution, but do something about it, that would be like different. Uh, so I felt how it came up was kind of accidental and, and yeah I did a, a video and I, I got involved in it and it was very widely shared and, and it was, someone yeah. like you and a man as well I think talking it about it does yeah. make a big difference yeah but I think also it was important that the people would identify me as coming from a conservative and Christian background maybe Buddhist as well but I do pray so here's a man who's over 60, who says his prayers, who loves the idea of God and the presence of Jesus or whatever. I, I'm in that zone. And I would be saying that, of course I would pray for... Well, I wouldn't... You know, I don't, I don't pray like that the mystery of the cosmos will kind of reveal itself in a political decision, one way or another. But I would... You just, like, to me, prayer is not actually for something in particular. It's an opening and a listening. It's, it's like listening to the silence in the cosmos. It is I thou. It is, I go to the tree, and I don't name the tree. The tree has a name. Hello tree, talk to me. Now, everybody I know prays. All the post-Catholic, post-Christian friends I have, who would have no time for a formal religion, they pray like bilio. We're finished with formal religion. We're finished with patriarchal formal religion. It's not going to come back. Yes, it, it will continue, and it'll continue in different forms. And there's a worse religion going on, and that's like this nationalism, Brexit. That's all religion. I mean, I wish to God Dawkins would wake up and realise that the metaphysical ideas of, of medieval Europe are not the problem. They really aren't. The problem are religion without Christianity or without formality. But all that religious stuff is like, you might say it's bad for you, but if you think about Christianity like Buddhism, like mind training, like, does the meditation on, let's say, in the Christian thing, in, the, in, in, the, in Jesus, let's say, does it help you actually be here right now more open and more intensely? Yeah. And if it does, it's really good for you. The same way as all the various forms of psychotherapy and various forms of Buddhism. But I just think people haven't really so, come to see how you can how that can exist separately to all the other stuff that we don't that a lot of people have turned away from and and the institutional aspect of the church. Yeah. I think people can't see that it can be lived in a completely autonomous way that doesn't yeah. need anything else, doesn't need any institution. People can't see it, and and who knows how the history will play out? Yeah. I mean, it it may take hundreds of years. Nothing may change. I don't know, but but certainly from my point of view, it seems to me that when I read the Christian stories or when I think of Christian practice it's it's about the radical emancipation of the human soul and psyche and that it says explicitly in enough places 
neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, black nor white. This is about being human. And we wouldn't have created the human evolution of European culture without the Christian foundation. The camper van's rocking slightly here. Just as we move, it's a nice feeling. Um, it's like the pram. Kind of, it's the pram. <laughs> yeah, it is like the pram rocking in the background. Where yeah. do you feel most at home? Like, do you need the solitude to feel at home? Or how would you describe a place or a feeling when you feel utterly at home in yourself and your surroundings? I love wood, woodland. And after woodland, I mean, I love, I love, you know, the sea. And after the sea, and maybe before the mall, I love churches. I hate to say it. I know it's so awful. But I'm, I'm, I just happen, I'm being honest, that at the moment I have made an embrace of the kind of icons in the Orthodox Church and I, I, I find them like, I find them beautiful cathedrals of love and of the imagination and of aesthetic beauty. But I also find Glen Column Kill is a cathedral. It's a cathedral of, of vast proportions and Skellig, you know, the rocks out there. I, I find these places on the ocean just like cathedrals of, they sustain me in the sense that this cosmos is just, leaves you speechless all the time. So you're 66 now, Michael? I am, yes, and I have the pension. What's what's the next sort of whatever, how many years you have left? What is uh-huh. your... <laughs> You're going to be getting more and more religious. Like, will, it, will you be a monk the next time I see you? No, like, you I wouldn't think so. Cave? No, I wouldn't think that would happen. I, I tend, I, I'd say I could go the opposite direction. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been consistent. No. And I've always taken religion as a kind of a bit of comedy. You know, and, and the bottom line for me is other people. The bottom line for me is having fun. But the one thing about religion for me is that it's like metaphor. And I think that there's a danger. Writers have to make sure that they, that they keep language alive, okay? And there's a fierce danger at the minute that in a kind of a world of realism, of secular realism, of social secular realism, that language dies. And that, and that when somebody says, you know, uh, I talked to an angel this morning, that sentence has a metaphor in it. That sentence has already pushed the boundary of, of normal reality. You know, if, if I said to you, may we always, every one of us, be surrounded by angels, that's a way of using language that's not important just because metaphysically you believe in angels, but because what you're doing to the sentence, you're stretching the words to a sinewiness that writers must, and I find sometimes Sometimes there's a need for writers to do that. Thanks very much to Michael Harding and Michael's book, Chest Pains, is out now. I'm Roisin Ingle and remember to subscribe to Back to Yours wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes and tell all your friends about this podcast. Next time, my guest on Back to Yours is the comedian, author and actor Tara Flynn. I've been the eternal Kulshi because I grew up outside Kinsale, so I was a Kulshi even in Kinsale. Then when I went to college in Cork, went to UCC, I was a Kulshi because I was from Kinsale. And now in Dublin, of course, being originally from Cork, I'm 
and culture, like to the max and very proud of it.